So some questions today. So the first one is perhaps a comment. Sitting in the opening yesterday, I experienced aligning with the Buddha Dharma Sangha as coordinates for stability, like a holographic compass. I've been returning to this in the breaks between sessions, noticing how my mind can get caught up in something and start to spin. Then I put my hand on my heart and align with the Buddha as this central axis, the Dharma in my heart opening to the way it is, the Sangha, this field of blessings. I noticed how my heart feels deeply nourished when it opens upwards through this central channel. Sense of stability. I'm curious about these different planes or spheres of experience the heart can open into. It feels like opening through the lateral plane out into this world, my heart moves through all kinds of familiar feelings, weariness, overwhelm, inadequacy, giving up, withdrawing, guarding. Yet opening upwards feels easy, a relief, deep gratitude. I'm not quite sure what the question is. Well, I don't know what your question is, but my, if you like, my point of inquiry is what's the difference upwards opening, lateral opening, and a person discerns the distinction between the two, this upwards opening, uh, feels relief and gratitude, and the lateral opening around feels more disturbed. Mm. So, the vertical axis and the lateral dimension. These themselves are curious terms. Um, mm. <laughs> but they happen to be, they happen to exist, that's all. They happen to be there. And uh, they correspond to particular um, energy channels that are described in many of, well, two major classic traditions I refer to, uh, well, the Indian and Chinese um, energies, understanding energy systems, and also there's um, contemporary practices like craniosacral, where they really tune into the energy fields, channels, meridians, nadis, whatever it is you know, that, that, that human bodies are in, you know. And naturally the human body is an energetic experience, but I mean, by which I mean it has vitality in it, life force. And we start off as a tiny, tiny single cell and that just starts dividing, yeah, and forming all these multitudes, billions of cells, and some strikingly different, a blood cell to a bone cell to a hair cell. What's doing all that? How does those cells know what to do? Yeah, and so does a cell have kind of knowledge packed inside it somewhere? Uh, and hmm, 
you know, sort of some contemporary explorations, particularly some Bruce Lipton you might have looked up or sensed that the actual intelligence is outside the form. You know, the form arises within an, in, within an intelligent field. You know, of course, this is way out <laughs> for what conventional um, biology will teach you. Also, if you look at Rupert Sheldrake, you'll see the similar kind of thing. Rupert Sheldrake, Bruce Lipton. You know. And I don't, they're not working together, I don't think, but they seem to have come across the same sort of hypothesis they're working out. So this is energetic fields. And this form, this physicality arises within that and begins to absorb that and be formed through that. So, you know, and these energetic fields form the body or guide the body into how it's formed from being one cell into being, I don't know how many billions of cells, right? All seemingly knowing what to do and in sync with each other, which is just mind staggering how, how that's happening, you know. <laughs> so we say there's an intelligent energy. We recognize intelligence is not thinking, but a sensitivity, a responsiveness. Yeah. And in Buddhism, they call it Ayu Sankara, life force energy. It's certainly intelligence. doesn't mean it's necessarily wise or liberated, but it's, it's operating according to certain programs to, to generate a physical form, a functioning physical form. Now, in um, people who track, and there's technical skills to track some of these main energy channels, and there's generally a, a vertical one, which I call the upright axis, and there are several, there's a, a lateral one, which is centered on the heart, sweeps out, and they can detect the heart energies, actually can be detected, you know, in, in some sweeping out to... I don't know, several feet around. And uh, that's the heart energy. And so that heart energy naturally is that which deals with relationship. How it's going to be with all this stuff. It's reaching out what's around me. So naturally it's highly affected because that's its job, is to be affected and keep responding. And how is this and how is that? And, you know. And naturally, a lot of stuff it can contact is is not so pleasant or can be extremely difficult. So it can be quite stirred and has memory in it. Yeah, what's memory? Okay, the intelligence receives particular impressions that cause it to shake or shimmer or reach out. That has a formative effect. Yeah, it's like if you stir. Uh, water, yeah, and then you, you know, and then you put a, a stick in it, the water creates a kind of ripple where you put the stick in it, right? It, it meets the, the obstacle and it, it, it ripples around it. Now, the thing with energy is when you, even when you move the stick, the ripple remains, unless something has helped it to return to its basis, to its primary state of just expansive. Yeah. So it is affected, it shimmers, and the effects create particular, you know, 
disturbance patterns in our energy. We call this tissue memory or heart memory. So in practice this means we see something and that same ripple effect occurs. It triggers and, and the heart remembers that. It goes into its happiness or its shock or whatever. So it definitely it contracts or it reaches out or it gets stirred. Something triggers that memory. That's what it does. Now the vertical axis doesn't do that because it's not it's, it's not its job. Its job isn't to feel the field around it. Its job is to maintain central singularity. Like I am here. There's a here-ness. That's its function. I am here. It locates this here, just this. Uh, now, when there's a lot of disturbance in the heart, we don't even recognise as a here-ness. We're so dis- dealing with all disturbances. Yeah. So our practice is to kind of, you know, quell the disturbances enough, allay the disturbances enough, so that we can okay, just withdraw from that. It's not crucial right now. And so we can get to that upright axis to get that sense of something that's just here. Why is that? Because that presence can then help the lateral energies to settle. Okay? Because if I've got disturbances in the heart field, disturbances in there, and every time I remember that the same disturbance occurs, what is it that can restore that to its undisturbed state? When the vertical energy is encouraged to widen. So it spreads its stable presence over the heart field. Right? This maybe sound weird. I'll tell you what, what, what I'll tell you what it seems to me. <laughs> it, it, encouraging it to widen from this dispassionate palace, spreading its energy, its presence over the heart field. Heart field picks up an energy which is not doing the same thing. It's not stimulated. Not because it's suppressed, it just doesn't do stimulation. What it does is presence. Right? It's not saying stop it, it's just the function of the upright energy is not to do stimulation, it's to do presence. So when that presence can spread over the heart energy, heart energy picks up a sense of a presence, which is kind of cool, very present. Not shutting things down, it's just the cool, steady presence. And the heart energy picks up that influence and it starts to, oh, oh, release these distortions. And you know that. <laughs> That's what we call meditation. Um, but you've probably not heard it talked about in that way. But since you bring up these references, I'll explain it in that way. You might say, being mindful of the heart. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, You could say embracing the mind with a heart, embracing the whole field with an exalted, abundant, steady mind. You can call it that. The Buddha surveying the world, you could call it that. 
The important thing, it does actually not just look down upon, but really integrate into the disturbed field. Like it wants to touch it. It wants to be present with the disturbed field, disturbance in the field. It doesn't want to, oh no, I want to get away from that stuff. It wants to be present with it. And this is where it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit tricky because sometimes, you know, we can slip into getting more activated and just obsessive about our problems. Or we can slip into being slightly dissociated, like, oh, well, so what? And it's just that, 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 this is what love is about, really. This is the agape, the dispassionate love of, just want to be with that. For no other reason than to be with it. And that has effects. But, longer story, the upright axis itself is not necessarily all, all there. I mean, it is in a way, but it can be some places can be, um, you know, sort of closed through traumatic effects where we haven't felt safe to be present. You know, when we haven't, bits of our system haven't felt capable of being present, safe to be present. So they sort of shut off. So another aspect of the process is to really sense that upright axis all the way down through your body. All the way down through your body. From the top of your head through your felt body. In some places you don't feel very much because that's perhaps where it's, for some reason or other, it's gone absent. So it's buried, it's closed. There's a closure around that place where it hasn't felt okay to be present. So again, you know, this is not necessarily all just that straightforward. But the more we can feel where we can feel healthily stable, you know, in our bodies, in our actions, with ourselves, we can stand in our presence, look at ourselves and feel that's okay. You keep returning to that because that place or that experience, you'll feel a sense of the stability and an openness. I'm not closed down, I'm not running away, I'm open. You linger in that and you pick up the sign. And somebody later asks, what's this sign thing mean? Uh, well, this is what it means. Uh, it doesn't just mean, this isn't the only instance, it's a, it's quite a common word, although it's translated in different ways. It means you pick up the defining characteristic. If I had to say one thing or one or two things that cover this experience, I'd say it feels open. It feels stable. I don't know. Yeah, that's it. That's what it strikes me. Now that sign, the heart, can pick that up. Oh, that's that. And it remembers it. You know, a memory is a very immediate experience. Oh, that's that. It lingers. It retains the echo of that. And you begin to then sweep through the body with that quality in mind. Very slowly, gently, 
So it just encourages other pieces to come back into presence. Sometimes they're a little bit numb or disturbed or uncertain, so it's got to be done with, you know, kindness. So the upright axis, the more that's fully um, established, it's a tremendous resource. And uh, the other pieces that, of course, you know, well, why bother with this lateral stuff then? <laughs> you know, just be there. That's tempting, you know. But it's not a fruition. It's when we can actually, you know, suffuse the all-encompassing world, <laughs> as they say. The Buddha surveys the world with unconstricted chitta. There's a phrase, the unconstricted heart, the unconstricted awareness, unconstricted by perceptions, feelings, forms, consciousness, memories, activations, defilements, suffering, aging, sickness, death, is not constricted. <laughs> yeah. This is what yeah, this is this is the potentials that are there. Because if that heart domain is left uncleaned or uncultivated, the chances are, or possibilities are, that you can get negative effects that actually knock you out of presence. Because the two channels are connected or related. So in that heart field, there can be these senses, as the person mentioned, this tired, weary enough, you know, because that's, that's the truth of how it is. You know, when the heart isn't properly nourished and supported and understood, it is fed up, weary. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, guilty, negative, regretful, so on. So that's what I can offer. So next question, person wondering about this notion of space that I touch upon. Mind perceives space as a construct which takes on a limiting form. Some point a change of view occurs and attention shifts to space within which forms arise and cease, a boundless experience, experience which is quite blissful, doesn't engage with subtle thoughts. How can this be a skillful practice in daily life, where mind objects are more disagreeable? Telling myself at this time it's just this seems to work, may not be a real understanding of the nature of impermanence and may be a quick means of escaping the suffering mind. And you appreciate guidance. Yes, it is a quick means, but um, yeah, why not? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's why, it, that's what it's there for. It's like a simple, a simple sort of push button, one click. <laughs> uh, of course, it's not the end of the story, but it's handy to have a, a one click that you can, whoa, you know, pull out of the drama uh, because then of course if you're related to what I just said it's just this takes you back to the upright and you're surveying so now you've got a good place if you like and then it's the relationship with what's in the 
heart field is the um, ongoing practice which involves all our loving kindness, patience, understanding, all, all of these enlightenment factors kind of blossom in that, in that field. Because the shadow effect, if you like, of it's, it's just this, actually I don't say it's just this, I say it's like this, because just this is, it seems that he puts it down. No, it's not just this, it is this. It's like this now. Um, the shadow effect can be you just kind of poo-poo it all. Right, so what? Just condition stuff. Um, and then that's really um, not the completion of the practice. Because how can you function in daily life if you're just somehow sort of dismissive of conditions? There's got to be a meeting of them where, you know, otherwise there's a certain clinging to being separate from it all. person dealing with a very volatile situation, severe conflict and stress, wrong action, getting angry, could make the situation much worse. Tendency is to suppress in that environment but then express the anger or the emotion into other contexts. How do we deal with this on an emotional level? Midway between expressing destructive emotions and suppressing them. It feels like it needs expression. How to do that? Uh-huh, well, that's kind of what we're, one of the reasons we're doing this retreat. Because you can, you do know how to button your lip, as it were, which is probably not a bad idea at first. (laughs) Of course, it can't stay buttoned for long. And then internally, you're dealing with this flow. So we find, first of all, there's the acknowledgement of that. um, And perhaps beginning to acknowledge it more fully as a potent force and not not necessarily a person. Potent for everybody gets angry, I'm sure. Even a mouse gets angry. You poke it with a stick. Um, we are emotional creatures. That's the way we should be. We're designed that way to respond. And maybe this anger is not such a bad thing per se, though action upon it can be extremely negative, but here it is. So we stop kind of blaming it, or I am this, so it's sort of disengage from the topic that makes you feel angry and try to acknowledge just the energy and the, the rush and the intensity of experience and create some space, which is you know, what your body does really, it's what the body's for feeling in your body and opening to areas of your body that aren't angry, like your ears or your knees. Very few people have angry knees. So if you it helps to, you know, widen your awareness to include the non-angry bits. Most of your anger's kind of churning around in the torso somewhere on the face. So then you've got a kind of a vessel to 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 hold that without compressing it.
It's quite a wide vessel, even including the space around you and the ground beneath you. And you can feel this energy pouring through, rushing around. Now, if you've managed to disengage the topic, from the topic, you feel the energy. And then the self coming in. Oh, they shouldn't, I shouldn't. How am I supposed to deal with this? God, is this, you know, guilty, upset, or just really going to go for it? And it's like, just try to, you know, acknowledge that. Say, no, let's just get back to the the experience in itself. Um, And um, use your body to hold it, contain it carefully. Uh, uh, And then, you know. And it may be that, you know, you can get a sense of the, the strength of anger. What anger does as an energy, so if you differentiate between the emotion, which has got pictures and images and topics running around it, and the energy, the energy of its anger is there to very strongly establish your presence, isn't it? Somebody's threatened you and you're, you know, so you're strengthening up, you're powering up. So, okay, fine. Yeah, let's get powered up. Right down into the ground, you know. And then if you are fully powered up, you don't need the emotion anymore. You've done it. You know, it's accomplished what it needs to do. Right? It's done it. You've found your ground, you're firm. Then it's a possibility. Right. Okay, let's take some deep breaths. And then it may be possible to return to those triggering points of what you feel, what you feel is wrong, or what people have done, or what you know, whatever it is, from that completed place. Maybe okay, this is something somebody's done that. You need to talk to somebody about that, or question: Is this correct? Because sometimes we get extremely angry about something uh, that somebody's done or said, and actually we got it wrong. They didn't say that. That's what we heard, but that wasn't what they were intending. It's not that not that common that people really want to hurt each other. I mean, yes, to a certain extent, but we can feel ourselves offended through turns of phrase or non-phrases. Why weren't? Why didn't you say something? You know. So we perceive. So you need to check out when that happened. What was happening for you? Uh huh. Well, this is what happened for me. Not really. So there's some way in which you can both return to the situation if possible. Now maybe the situation's way in the past, in which case you've got to kind of cultivate that capacity from your stable place. You have the capacity for this opening, and the opening has got heart qualities, kindness, forgiving, releasing, which, which liberate you from these effects. There's a whole field of processes that you can you know it could take quite a long time to work through. But that's the that I would suggest is the basic thing I'd place now. Remember to use your body, whole body, until you've come to a stability, till the anger or whatever it has has found a place to, to do its job, which is to firm you up. And then from there you can begin to, the energy will begin to release and you feel steady. Now if it's not doing that, then what's happening is you're, you're actually still 
going into the perceptions of what triggered it. And they'll keep going forever. And although it may have truth in it, it doesn't take you out of suffering. It doesn't offer a reasonable way for resolving the topic. You've got to get back to stability, which it will do if you handle it carefully. And then you can, from there, then as a whole skill and cultivation of how to deal with the triggering effects. person asks when they feel their body and heart are stable, is that a good moment to bring into mind a problem that has been of concern to me? Yeah, could be. If it's that which arises in your meditation practice, it keeps nudging. Um, Because it is certainly good to just not have to deal with topics. You know, in many, just to deal with the basic, getting your system up and clean and steady. But if topics keep nudging in, okay, you've got to return to those. And that's part of the practice. So someone's been asking for this person's help and been asking for help quite a lot, too often. And, you know, the person's asking for help definitely needs some help. But person A, who's asking me the question, feels, you know, like this person's always asking for my help. I like... uh, I feel it's a bit much. Um, it's about relationship, isn't it? And relationship has to have two people in it. So the uh, tendency for kind-hearted people is to not necessarily put themselves in the relationship. That is, the relationship's all about the other person, how to help support the other person. And uh, there's not enough of the me in it. So... It's like it's only one person in the relationship. Uh, maybe it's useful to, even though you are perhaps in the caring position, still you have to have a little bit of the me has to appear in it. Otherwise the person you're dealing with doesn't really know or get a reference you know, to, what do I say, to training themselves. Also, is the right time, the right place. They get too dependent. So I think you, as the carer, it's your responsibility to help the other person by saying, "You know, I really want to help you, but right now I need to take a break or something." Or freshen up or I need some silence now otherwise you're not really guiding the other person in a responsible relationship so you want to say yes I do want to help you but the way I help you is by making sure I'm in good condition to do so (laughs) and that's not saying you're a burden it just means it does take my energy and I'm happy to offer it when it's there and now it's not there so I need to do some things to just get myself up and into condition that seems very mature and that's what we want to encourage in ourselves and in others person mentions i talked about meditating with the eyes open without seeing this is challenging for me how does that happen well perhaps i misspoke I mean, so without focusing on particular details in the visual field, clearly if your eyes are open, 
there will be seeing occurring unless you're in you know pretty somewhere else state uh, so there is seeing but we instead of focusing on the you know on the details the visual objects we focus on the act of seeing that is there's a wide expanse of different colors and uh, shades and lights occurring and out of that I interpret forms um, so there's a very wide focus and soft you could say imagine you're looking over the ocean or imagine you're standing on top of a mountain and it's quite misty and you're looking out this, this ocean of mist so it's wide details are not there um, now maybe that's too difficult that you find your eye immediately fixates on some object that delights or annoys or gets you curious so can you disengage and sometimes where you disengage you can refer to the physical feeling of the eyeballs resting in your head so you just come slightly out of the visual consciousness into the tactile consciousness so it's you know what's happening around the eye if you focus around the eye and the eyeball itself you should notice a difference between when you see something there's a slight contraction of focusing now if you relax around your eyeball even within the eye the pupil just physically relax the physical qualities of that then the focus will soften so if you go to the physicality of it and feel when you really focus on something then naturally as I'm doing it everything tightens up so if you relax in the eye sockets and if possible relax the iris pupil uh, and this may involve widening your awareness to include this mask yeah, the entire mask that runs around the forehead upper cheekbones this kind of wide band that you put a mask on relax all of that including the temples that may again also support a very wide soft focus now if that still isn't working for you then you can use listening and of course you can use the entire body just as if you're say sitting in a pool of water so the whole body is feeling something rather than details someone asks about band of tightness at the back of the head and behind the ears i recommend wherever there's tightness you extend your awareness keeping that place in mind but extend from that band to cover the entire head and even further down the body so it helps the energy that's causing the tension to find areas where it can begin to drain and of course notice your mental state so there could be an emotional mental psychological quality that's happening there that needs to be acknowledged and also just oh this is trying this is about trying or this is about fearing or this is about yeah 
so these places of tension can be quite instructive. The body's telling us something. Can we listen to it? Mm-hmm. And not say just immediately even get rid of it, but what's it saying? In its own language. Someone says in their family there's a history of Alzheimer's and the person themselves feels they have an ageing mind. So they're wondering about Alzheimer's. Do you think heart wisdom is knowable when dementia is present? How might practice change or continue to be a support if one has Alzheimer's or any sort of decline of higher cognitive functioning? Which is definitely quite, there's a likelihood of that for any of us. Um, I think it's, I don't know what the figures are, but it's not that rare to have some degree of, you know, cognitive decline. And this is why it's important to get the other intelligences going, <laughs> the body intelligence, the heart intelligence, when the, when the conceptual stuff sort of starts to go rickety and frayed. Because <laughs> these are the most important intelligences for managing your well-being. The conceptual intelligence isn't really that good at that. <laughs> so as I was suggesting, you know, as I've been saying, you know, between the spinal axis and the lateral field, between the body and the heart, that's those are the two intelligences that have a sympathy, a symbiosis. And if they can begin to work with each other and support each other, then even when the cognitive functioning goes, then you've got something that will manage and uh, release. Now, I was reading a book by somebody with dementia. The book was called Somebody I Used to Know, and the name was Wendy Mitchell. There's an Alzheimer's society in Britain for people experiencing this phenomenon, and I think she's a leader in that, and she seems to have managed to create this book. Obviously, somebody was helping her describing the experience and it's it's very interesting and brave book really um, and she's talking about when you, you go into a black hole and you just do not know anything and you just have to wait there until something comes back uh, now meditative training is excellent for that <laughs> yeah it really is great for that when you're you're not engaged with your thinking process and you're just holding presence and dealing with the, the uncertainties, the fear, the agitation as it's happening and managing it. You can't manage that with your thinking mind, you manage it with your heart and body. And so um, I think what we're doing is very valid and um, helpful for dealing with these conditions that may occur to any one of us. Somebody's showing me a video clip of a restaurant in Japan, which is all the waiters and waitresses have Alzheimer's, a senility, and the restaurant's called We Forget Your Orders. <laughs> and so <laughs> they're quite upfront about it. So, but then what happens is these people are serving the food, and they're getting all the orders wrong. <laughs> 
dishing up the wrong food. Because everybody knows that's what's going to happen, they're prepared for it. There's an immense amount of humor and, and love. Because, you know, they say, I don't know whose food this is, but I'm giving it to you. <laughs> and just the relief of not having to be embarrassed and anxious and rejected and just, just, to, just to be fallible human beings with no apology and defense and rejection about it. Right? We're all fallible. And it's great when we fully acknowledge that and we're no longer, you know, blaming and criticizing and dismissing people for it. And so this is a very lovely project this person's established. Says so Alzheimer's and not that uncommon. We should be, begin to normalize it. Just like people who lose their eyesight or hearing. So they say that one in four women and men in Ireland have experienced some form of childhood sexual abuse. Could you offer some guidance on how people affected by these issues might skillfully manage this within their practice? How to practice with disembodiment, repressed memories, dysregulated nervous systems? forgiveness practices, any other teachings. Yeah, well, one in four is, is a, certainly a shocking and, you know, translate those numbers into realities. It grabs you, doesn't it? One in four. Yeah. So anyway, clearly, uh, you know, this is uh, tragic, and when we try to kind of review the loss of boundaries, the loss of safety, the loss of um, the ability to say no. Mm. Mm. the loss of trust, the loss of dignity, Mm. the loss of feeling comfortable in your own body. And the disorientation and confusion that occurs because you are sort of in this body to some extent, but it's it's not safe. Um, so the first thing perhaps we have to do is how does a safe boundary get established Mm. and maybe this just literally means having a physical space which is safe the same thing with rape victims you know safe it's your boundary it's very and you you can establish it uh, it's a physical space. Um, and kind of, yeah, we do that in meditation and retreats, and in meditation, establishing, say, a boundary of attention. Also, the feeling, it's not just, okay, I'm stuck in this room. No, it means, what well, in this room I can be whatever. Whatever I can be, it's up to me. You know? Not dependent upon anybody else's permission or say-so. Whether they like it or not, 
you know, that kind of boundary. So it should have a lot of no in it, a good amount of healthy no. If you can say no properly, you can say yes when it, when you want to. You know, so boundary, safe boundary. Uh, and maybe even somebody else needs to help you with that. Like, this is yours. It's absolutely yours. No, I don't need anything. It's yours. Up to you, you know. So obviously there's physical space, but there's even relational space. If you have someone who helps you with that. We say, I just, I want you to say no. You know, I want you to tell me where your boundary is and say no one way or another. You know? And I'm pleased to hear it. So you're trying to encourage the person to, to feel their boundary. If they don't get it right, at least you're encouraging them to get that, uh, that, that, that capacity. So some power is returned uh, to, that, to the person. And then, of course, the you know big job is to well is to work with the, the all the emotional and psychological felt experiences, and um, way it is with childhood abuse particularly. The weird thing about it is that the person somehow feels guilty, the victim feels guilty, or can feel guilt about being in a body, because you know. Every childhood is not really so so bonded to to adults. That's their security is to be bonded to an adult. Now they don't have a choice about that. It's just natural development of the human being. Human being naturally is bonded to the parent. That's the way it's supposed to be because the parents going to do the. They've got to be, because the parents are going to do the protecting, the guarding, the nourishing for them. So they're bonded to them. This means the child is not really absolutely separate from the, the parent. Yeah. And uh, so it's a very crucial phenomenon. So therefore, if the parent is abusive, the child can't reject the parent because the parent is their, their world. So instead, the, the child rejects themselves. And if you understand that, it means they feel it's their fault. Not intellectually, but as a guilt experience. I'm, something wrong with me, something, you know. And it's not, it's, it's not rational. It's a kind of feeling of shouldn't be here. You know, something wrong. Because they can't reject the parent because the parent is the ground. You see what I mean? So instead, they... Re- they reject aspects of themselves called guilt, inadequacy, don't deserve, don't deserve guilty, not good enough, that kind of thing. Can go impure even and around anything really, but probably around their sexual energy, around their bodies. So I have to really practice, uh, how do you practice with that, is beginning to feel your body internally as a living system, you know, all of it, starting with the upright axis, that's your safest place, try to get that re-established, mm-hmm. lateral sense, so don't go into particular physical details, try to get the whole, first of all, that basic structure, energetic structure, 
through that. And then find, you'll find in that places which are quite unhappy, one way or another disturbed, and then this sense of, you know, bringing them back, not excluding them, even though they may have pangs of fear or anger or disturbed emotion in them. You sort of ask them to come back, you know, or bring bring them in. And of course these various memories and perceptions can arise. That's why you do need, a, for this, for just doing it in meditation, you need a strongly um, embodied practice, which is holistic. See what I mean? It's, it's covering body and heart, whole body, whole heart. And then the two together will form the matrix for healing. I would say that, I don't, not an expert on this, but I would, I would conjecture that it's probably also good to have some, a wise person to help with that. Because some of the emotions can be very disturbing and uh, we feel a bit, we feel a bit lost. And of course, you know, the beauty of it is, however abused we are, we are incredibly resilient. And so, you know, the first thing is to, why the importance of establishing that upright axis, the ground, the resi- get your resilience there, first of all, before you can begin to open the territory. Get that there. And you've got something to return to if things get very volatile. Okay. Um, that's probably all I can offer at this particular time. So thank you for your questions.